You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now bring you Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and welcome again to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the fulfillment, the completion, the full realization of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and its sacraments. Thank you very much for tuning in today. I think you'll uh, be, I hope, as excited by this show as I am, because once again, I have a uh, guest on who I'll bring on in a minute or two to give, in this case, her witness testimony about, uh, one could say, her return to the Catholic Church. Um, I'll let her tell her story, so I won't tell too much about it, but it's it's very exciting and very moving and very um, uh, Eucharist-centered. Uh, but before I bring her on, let me just do a little bit of housekeeping. Last week I spoke uh, quite a bit about an upcoming uh, kind of a Jewish Roots of the Catholic Church pilgrimage that I'll be leading to Israel, to the Holy Land, this coming April, April of 2016. And in that context of telling about the trip, I said that if anyone's interested in more information, they can send an email to, and I gave the wrong email address. So the correct email address is jewishmessiahtrip at gmail.com. All one word, that's jewishmessiahtrip at gmail.com. Last week when I gave uh, out the email address, I omitted the trip part. So if anyone sent an email, it's been lost in cyberspace. So again, if you want any information about a trip that I'll be leading to Israel right after Easter this year, just send an email to jewishmessiahtrip at gmail.com, or you can find out information on my website, salvationisfromthejews.com. So with that done, let me uh, invite on um, our guest for the show. Are you there? I'm here. Well, why don't you uh, briefly introduce yourself and then, um, I mean, you did a very beautiful job, uh, you know, when in preparation for the show, you, you gave me your witness testimony. So why don't you just introduce yourself and, um, you know, talk about your journey from, uh, you know, born Catholic through Protestantism back to the fullness of the Catholic Church. Yes, I'd be delighted. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, my name is Maria. I live in Dover in New Jersey, and I was actually raised and baptized in a very culturally Catholic Italian home, uh, baptized into the faith. My family went to church on Easter and Christmas, and we, you know, had all the fuss, had all the banquets, you know, the whole family was together. Uh, my grandmother and grandfather had a beach house, and I used to go on my own with them. Um, every summer. I was like an only child during the summer, and I grew up with three sisters um, with my parents. And when um, when I was growing up, I used to watch my fa- my grandfather actually created um, artwork for the Catholic Church. He was trained in Rome, and I used to watch him put together inlay work, like in his workshop. It was just something I grew up with. It was a beautiful thing. I watched these beautiful pictures come to life from little shards of wood, and they were the Last Supper, and they were uh, different scenes, and he actually, the only thing we have left from a church altar that he carved, um, he actually carved four church altars, and the one that he modeled after the Westminster Abbey was in St. Michael's Church in Newark, where I was baptized, but all we have now of it is a picture, um, but it 
it took him five years of his life to create, and he actually finished it when my, the year that my mother was born. So there, this, the essence of the beauty of Catholicism was very present in my early childhood. But as I was born early in the 60s, when things were changing, I came, as soon as I had my first Holy Communion, um, there was some disagreement, and my own immediate family, not my extendeds, but my immediate family, left the Catholic Church, and we began a journey through the Protestant sects. And it was, we started in the Methodist Church, and oddly enough, my last stop before returning was also Methodist. But everything in between was just about every sect except for Jehovah Witnesses and, what's the other one, Kingdom Hall and Mormons. We pretty much went through every other, you know, Lutheran and Leaving the Catholic Church devastated my family. A lot of things happened, and God was present. You know, he's always there to help us through, but it affected my older sister. She left home very young, and I thought she was the coolest thing that hit the planet, so I left home very young, and I sort of walked away from the faith completely for a while. So my college years were very tumultuous, and oddly enough, God, who turns all things for good, um, even though I ended up in a marriage was not, which was not very healthy, not very happy, God blessed me with three children. All of them are my best friends. And my oldest son, uh, who came into this very unhappy marriage, was the one who God used to bring me back to the faith. And that forever, you know, it, it's just an amazing thing because what happened was, I, just as I was raised in the Protestant sects, I did the same thing with my kids. We went from, you know, one sect to the other, one church to the other because we moved a couple of times. And, but I think the most significant stop along the way was in the Jewish Messianic, uh, sects. It, I was actually with Jonathan Kahn who wrote a bestseller. He wrote The Harbinger. And I was in his church pretty much for about on or off for eight years. So both my oldest son, there's a lot of years between my first and my second child, so my oldest son was as steeped in the Old Testament and the lessons we learned from him. He's a great scholar, and he studied very hard, and he taught us. He was so generous with what he learned, and he taught us so much about the sacrificial system, and that went deep into my into my soul. It went into my heart because Leviticus wasn't a book I would have been able to tackle on my own. In fact, I remember one time he said at one sermon, he says, you know, everybody, as, as Protestants, we pick up the Bible, we have our, you know, we have our chart, we're going to read through the Bible every single day, you know, this chapter, that chapter, one from the old, one from the new, one from the Psalms. And you mean to do that. And then he goes, you get to Leviticus and you come to a complete stop. It's a very difficult book to read without being taught what it all means. And... Anyway, so he did a beautiful job in instilling in us the beauty of the sacrificial system, and there were many wonderful sermons. And what happened then was, then and at another time, I developed a great love for my Jewish roots. Um, I also, during the time that I... Yeah, Let me interrupt you with a question, and I hope that's okay, and if not, you can tell me, and I won't interrupt you again. But it just struck me. That and I, I've I've uh, listened to some uh, audio of Jonathan Kahn and and uh, you know I I know he's very very impressive. So here's my question: If, mm-hmm. if he did such a good job of ex- of uh, explaining the centrality of the sacrificial system in Judaism, which mm-hmm. is what Leviticus is about, and how all of Old Testament Judaism revolved around the sacrificial system, mm-hmm. um, 
but he didn't, he basically did not come to the conclusion that of course that sacrificial system has not been uh, eliminated but persists in the, in the holy sacrifice of the mass? Uh, the mass didn't come up. As a matter of fact, um, it was, the, the trouble with these Protestant sects is that they, they don't have so much of what we have as Catholics. They don't, um, th- as far as they're concerned, the, 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 the communion that we take once a month is a symbol, you know, and when you're with the, when you're with the Jewish, uh, folks and you take communion, it's a plate of matzahs that goes around, you know, and whatever matzah crumbs fall on the floor get vacuumed and, you know, you hold your own little cup. There's no consecration. They do appreciate that communion is part of what you do, but it's, to them, it's symbolic. So they See, don't, I guess, they don't, I guess my point is just, I wish he had taken it to the next step, which would have been, hey, if the role of sacrifice was absolutely central in Judaism, how come it was eliminated for good 2,000 years ago? I mean, in other words, it would have been nice if he could make the connection and say, exactly. well, maybe it wasn't eliminated, but in fact, it's it's a central, just as it was at the center of Judaism in the animal right. sacrifice, it's in the center of Christianity in the sacrifice of the Mass. Yeah, it's, so a, it's just, a shame I just there's a short-sightedness that. there. Yeah, um, there's, there's definitely a short-sightedness there because it, it, you know, I didn't, until I started reading the books that my son started giving me, um, I pretty much, you know, went to church on Sunday. You had your midweek service, you know, you had your midweek thing, uh, maybe a <clears throat> prayer group or two. <clears throat> but no, not that connection is definitely not, not made. In fact, um, the, and oftentimes, as we know, sadly, that, you know, in the Protestant sects, there's sometimes there's an anti-Catholic sentiment. Sometimes there's just ambivalence, you know. It's not always anti, it's not always rabid, but there's an ambivalence, you know. It's like the Catholics are Catholics, Protestants are Protestants, and the, I don't think that ever the twain shall meet because they're compl- two completely different religions. I don't think they, I think they know that on some level, but I'm looking back over... The, God uses everything in our journey, you know, and I think uh, the reason that I say that, the reason that I felt that went very deeply into my spirit is because um, it was during the time that I was with them, one afternoon, it was one of these things, and this sounds purely subjective, but this is a moment I can remember like it was yesterday for the rest of my life. I had just served my children lunch. This is just a common everyday thing, cleaning up after lunch. And I had an experience. Something took my breath away. I literally was gasping, saying, wow, who is this for? Who is this for? This love just just flooded my heart. And within two weeks, I got a prom- I, I actually promoted out of a very low-paying job into a very decent-paying job at a conservative Jewish temple. I was sort of, my coworkers knew I wasn't making much, and they knew I was a single mom, and my family did break. And But when I went to the conservative Jewish temple, now here I am as a Protestant. Not my, when I interviewed me, the rabbi said, now you can't, you know, you can't talk about your faith, And but if you want to ever convert to Judaism, just come into my office, you know. So I wasn't allowed to talk about Jesus, but the best I could do was show them that I loved them and they knew that I went to church and they knew that I loved the Lord. And that was the best I could do. But what, what happened there was I could see for myself the veil that exists over their eyes because so many times I would type sermons and type different things. In fact, one time I was typing a sermon at a, a, sermon at a, a very big uh, 600 families at this 
conservative Jewish temple in uh, Morristown, and there was a story about a rabbi whose son didn't wait for the people to come to him. He was an itinerant rabbi, and he went out to the people, and I literally had tears in my eyes saying, wow, this is Jesus, why don't they see him, you know, and that made me want to pray for them, and it, you know, I just wanted to serve them, and then one thing led to another, and at a certain point, oh, the point was, when the Passion of the Christ came out, my son went to see it when he was 15 years old, that made him start looking at all the artwork around the house going, isn't Uncle Joe still Catholic, isn't Aunt Marge still Catholic, isn't Uncle Anthony and Aunt Charlotte still Catholic, yeah, 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 he said, well, how come we're not Catholic, I said, I don't know. So he went on this journey, um, and he began to really he he really began to explore this very much. And it took some. He he spent the next three years seeking first. He was the first one to go into this journey of Catholicism, and he um, just started asking all the right questions. And at one point, it was the summer of I think it was the summer of 2011 2012. I think it was summer of 2012. He started asking me questions to make me think. And then he started handing me books. Would you be willing to read this? Would you? Yeah, sure, I'll be willing to read that. I read Rome's Sweet Home by Scott Hahn and Kimberly Hahn. And I had a book by Carl Keating called Fundamentalism versus Catholicism. And that book opened my eyes. It's actually a, a reference guide for people who want to go look at what the arguments are because once I became a Catholic, I kind of lost touch with my Protestant friends because I wanted to be able to defend what I did. So we ended up being catechized as a family. My two other children and my son and myself were catechized by a priest from the old tradition, from the extraordinary right tradition. And that first sitting of our first catechesis with a group of about 12 really great people was it encompassed sitting in front, he gave us all Baltimore Catechism, and we started on the main, the main theology of Catholicism, which was the incarnation and baptism and all those key cornerstone theology of our faith. And I remember he would say, okay, now why is the Trinity equal? And, you know, he'd ask us these questions that just, it was like your mind going to the gym. It was like your mind going on a 26K run. He said, well, I know the answer, but I don't know the words. He said, no, you don't know the answer if you don't know the words. Find the words. And this was what our little roundtables were like as we were prepared for confirmation because that at that point, my three children were conditionally baptized into the Catholic faith, all of them with their slate wiped completely clean, and then we all came in with candles, all four of us together, into the Catholic faith and, and to be received and to be given all of the all of the wealth. Like I went from, as a Protestant, my whole heart was in searching for God, loving God, and I had a lot of good loving friends. And it was it was what it was. But when I came into the Catholic faith and when I was catechized, and all of those things that used to leave me scratching my head, everything came into perfect clarity. Everything because. When I remember my last stop along the way, and this is very significant, after my son saw the Passion of the Christ, he just, he, I, hate to, I hate to backtrack, but I can't miss this. When he discovered the Shroud and Ray Downing's work and Russ Brayalt's work with the History Channel on the Shroud of Turin, that's another thing we went to search out. And we literally, literally followed our blessed Lord's face, face 
to his church. And, it, and it, you could see God's hand working very quickly and very majestically at that point in our life. And then when I started reading about the Mass and when I started understanding each stage of the Mass and when I started really doing my homework, because the priest that catechized us, would, if we went into confession, the first question was, well, what's your spiritual reading right now? You know, I mean, there was no slacking off. He, you know, so I'm on this saint, I'm on that saint. I'm, and then he would recommend, you know, these, these great books that, you know, I kind of read concurrently. So there was, there's a lot of homework to be done, and I certainly haven't arrived. There's still so much more to learn. But when I started to think, and I remember the last conversations I had in that last Methodist church that I was in, we always had a Bible study afterward, and one of the deacons from uh, Pastor Jonathan's church was one of the leaders at this little community church. And he, at one point, I remember saying to him, but if the Catholics believe that they're receiving him, how much more careful are they going to be about how they live? And then, oddly enough, the, the pastor from that church that year had a 14 stations of his own on Good Friday night. And, he had, and the last thing we did that night was look at the stone rolled. It was like a screen they have in contemporary worship. They always have a screen with the verses and everything. But that particular night, he told us to prepare one or two paragraphs from our hearts on every single station. The Methodist stations are a little different because one of them is the Eucharist. <clears throat> and I remember I wrote about three or four stations, one of which I had always meditated on my whole life was that when Christ is brought down from the cross and laid in his mother's arms. So I did a lot of writing that year. But when, when I, I sat down and I, I love writing about those stations so much, I wrote like three Three and I shared the well. I shared the one that I wrote, and then I wrote one for my dad, and I helped my mom write hers, and we all shared ours. And I was like, boy, I really loved writing about that. I'm going to write about them all. So when I sat down, and the first one on the list was the Eucharist from the Last Supper, I stopped dead in my tracks, and that's when it all happened. Like that's when I became a Catholic, and that's when I started reading on the saints and their their communication with God in the sacrament, and who could possibly describe a holy hour like a rich holy hour to somebody that doesn't, that hasn't opened their mind to the fact that the Eucharist is Him. I mean, those of us who have been trained in the Scriptures know that any time God repeats Himself in the Scriptures, if God says something twice through His inspired writers, He's emphasizing it. Well, how many times does he repeat, this is my body, this is my blood, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood? I mean, I stopped dead in my tracks at John 6. I mean, I just absorbed John 6 into my spirit. And now to think that I can go right downtown. Like my, my motto right now is, no matter what happens today, I can go to Mass tomorrow. I can go to Mass tomorrow. I can start my day in heaven. You literally, you're in heaven. I mean, every step of the way. It's you, you get to be in heaven, and it's like if the whole world knew this. You know, people people are always laughing at Catholics. Oh, they have so many children. Yeah, well, what if you had, you know, 12 kids who all knew this, who lived like this, who, you know, if they did something wrong, they had to go admit it. They had to go get absolution and live responsibly, live, you know, if the whole world were like this, it it would be awesome. And, and because it's based in love, this was, it, as as the saints say, the Eucharist is love found a way to stay with us. It was love's idea. You know, he's love, and he as love, he wants to stay with us. And, you know, I, I, I hope that, I know that St. Paul says that the Jewish people are going to have the veil lifted from their eyes. And when, if we benefited so much from their mistake, imagine when they receive. I mean, isn't that what we should all be hoping and praying for? So, Well, that's what this show is about. 
Um, yeah. And I'm happy to put in a plug that um, it is, in a way, not overtly, but covertly, what the show is about is in part to um, inspire people, including good Catholics and Protestant listeners, to pray for the conversion of uh, pray for the conversion of the Jews. Exactly. So um, I guess in a couple of minutes we'll we'll um, we'll go to a break. For, well, I want to ask you a question, but first I want to put in a plug for some past shows, which is um, almost two years ago now. I had on as a guest for a couple of shows the official shroud photographer Barry Schwartz, who oh, wow. was Jewish at the time and is still Jewish, but despite being Jewish, um, he is totally convinced of the authenticity of the shroud because he did a lot of uh, scientific investigation and, and he was the official team of about six people who had incredible access to the shroud and were able to do all kinds of scientific tests the and so forth. Team, yeah, yeah. And um, so if any listener wants to be absolutely convinced of the authenticity of the Shroud of Turin coming from a Jewish mouth, so to speak, um, at least on my website, Salvation is from the Jews, the uh, shows from March of 2014 with Barry Schwartz are still up there. I'm not sure whether or not uh, the Radio Maria uh, website uh, archives go back that far. Um, very interestingly, he hasn't become Catholic, um, although he says his, he's, he's not dead yet. You know, there's still, <laughs> you know, he's not presuming what's going to happen. But frankly, my personal opinion is the reason basically God doesn't has not want him to become Catholic yet because his evidence carries more weight at the moment to non-Catholics, to Jews and to Protestants, precisely because he isn't Catholic, because he is Jewish. Right. So he's kind of a more powerful witness. If he became Catholic, then the skeptics would just say, oh, he's been, you know, brainwashed like all the other Catholics. But sure. before going to the break, I want to ask you, because you mentioned, and it was so beautiful, um, boy, at some point did the rosary play a role? Oh, yes. Thank you so much. I had, I've tried to uh, get everything. Now, it's funny. When Jewish people, um, when the Jews that became Christians used to say, oh, I was afraid to turn from the end of Malachi and open the page to Matthew 1, I thought lightning would strike me. I had that same fear with praying the rosary because I was pretty well uh, steeped in, you know, this, oh, if you pay any attention to the Blessed Mother, you know, you're taking away attention from Jesus, which is so such a shame that um, if they would just think about that. Well, I had found this rosary came out of hiding. I had a rosary in my house, and it came out of hiding, and I put it on my dresser, and I said, God, if this is something you want me to do, and I was terrified. I know you'll make it clear that I should do this. And it, along about this time, and I don't remember exactly what the turn, oh, I know what it was. I was reading a book on the Mass, and I remember when, just before they, just before you receive the host, blessed are those called to the Supper of the Lamb. Well, the first day I ran, went running down to the local parish, before I was actually inducted with my whole family, I went down, and every morning there are women, this, between two, six, sometimes ten women that pray the rosary every morning. So I just started sitting and listening to them. And they kind of took me under their wing. They made sure I got my first miraculous medal. They taught me my rosary prayers. They would give me prayer cards. And that was the most loving uh, in, inception, I guess you could say, acceptance into becoming a rosarian. And ever since then, uh, I pray with them every morning. And I have 
a miracle that Our Lady did for us, which was, it was, it, it, it's such an amazing miracle. We, my children were in a situation, a very difficult situation for years. And I remember the priest that catechized us said, pray a memorare. Pray a memorare. I pray one memorare and a problem, a very scary problem I had for about 15 years was over that day. That day. And I remember I was walking through the park as we were facing this issue. It was very unpleasant, but I smelt roses, and there are no roses in this park. And Our Lady just took care of things so quietly, so quickly, so peacefully. And now that I've learned how to have a relationship with her, because it's I've once I've once heard it said that the fear of taking attention away from Jesus would be like a parent who has one child and is afraid they won't love their first child enough if they have a second. There's always enough love to go around. And, you know, he loved her. He, you know, and she, she's quite a friend. And the, the miracles attached to her just in her own family, uh, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing to describe, but she rescued us. It, with one memorare, and, and the rosaries have become something that uh, I love. Um, I remember I pray them, I, I try to pray them well. The, the books that I've read on the rosary, I remember there were these three sisters. There was this one saint that spoke about three sisters. One sister prayed in a rush, and Our Lady appeared to her sort of dressed in rags. The other sister prayed out of duty, and Our Lady appeared to her dressed as a commoner. And this other, the other sister prayed... And each rosary, each rose that she gave Our Lady, she tried to make as beautiful as she could. And I'll never forget this story because that was the sister who Our Lady appeared to dressed as a queen. And I I try to remember that when I pray my rosaries. And the comfort of it and how it's taught my, trained my mind to meditate is something that I wouldn't trade. It it, it just means everything to me. And, you know, the other thing, this this is what kind of, I like to keep things simple, you know. I think the best way you can get through to people, not trying to convince, but just trying to boil things down to what's simple. A house without a mother is a house, but when a mother's in a home, it's a home, you know. When mom's home, it's a home. It's like, why would God only give us the Bible? Why, why, Why would a limitless God only limit us to a book? You know, um, when when we look at the wealth that we have in the magisterium, when we look at, we have himself. And then I remember during one holy hour, I had a moment where during holy hour, certain things strike you. And I'll never forget this one when I, I had tears just dripping down my face going, you gave us your last drop of blood and your mother and his mother. How, you know, he shared his mother with us. I mean... There seemed to be, there's just no end to what he gave us when he gave the Catholic Church the full deposit of truth, because therein you find all of the beauty. I mean, shortly after we were confirmed, I remember one evening I was settling in with my rosaries and my prayer cards, and I was trying to organize all these beautiful things that people gave us, and I said, I'm surrounded by beauty, you know? And I think the world right now is so desperately in need of beauty. There's not a lot of beauty out there, are there? Modern artwork isn't beautiful anymore, and music's not beautiful anymore. And gosh, look what the church gave us. The church gave us the masses and Mozart and Bach and Palestrina and the things that elevate us. And and the world is noisy. 
But a good parish is quiet. It's there's peace. It's quiet, and you know it's in that quietness that God speaks to us, and it's in that quietness that we heal. And yet, it's like the Catholic Church, the quietness in a Catholic Church with our with our beautiful sacramentals. It's it's like looking at nature. Like when the flowers bloom, you don't hear them bloom, but the beauty is there. You know, the sky, it's the blue of the sky. You don't hear it, but it's so beautiful. I mean, that's what his full deposit of faith in his church is like. And I've been on both sides of the fence. I had to be deprogrammed, too. I mean, my son, and what he did that summer, over the course of that summer when he handed me the books by Scott Hahn and Carl Keating, and it's funny, when I was going through the Fundamentalism versus Catholicism book, I remember I got halfway through the book when I realized, oh, this is a reference guide, you know, because it, it helped it it snapped everything into focus, like all of the questions I used to have. When I look at life through the Catholic lens, it snaps everything into focus. That way, if you're suffering, your suffering has a purpose. If there's something in your life that you have to, if you that you have to bear, well, that's your cross. You know, it's not like you try to change things and you have to call things down and you have to. Oh, you can't accept that. No, you accept everything that God comes, that God sends. And he comes with what he sends, and it and it simplifies things. That's the beautiful thing. It's like you have this paradox between what is so beautiful, and yet it's laced with simplicity. And I and I once heard that too. God's truth is is mystery. It's simplicity shrouded in mystery, and you have to think to accept it. I I thought my way into this faith. I used my intellect and my reason. This was not this was not some crackpot. Uh, you know, blind, I use my mind in order to, to fully receive what this is. You can't receive Catholic faith without using your mind. The greatest minds wrote for, for the faith. You know, St. Thomas Aquinas, when you think of what, what he wrote, and then six months before he died, he said, it's straw, it's nothing. And yet you have these brilliant minds that have given us so much. And, uh, it, and you know it never ends. You know that the richness of what you receive will never end. That's the beautiful thing. So I, I'm, I've still, I'm still hoping the rest of my family will come along. <laughs> I still pray for them, and that's the beauty of the rosary too. It's like you don't, you, you try to convince to a point, and then you can say your rosaries, and then you don't have to be like a clanging symbol, you know, when you when you hope and you wish that your loved ones would come along. Yeah. Well, that's probably. Thank you, by the way. That was very, very, uh, very uh, beautiful. Um, You're welcome. I think this is probably a good take, place to take that short break, and uh, we'll be back in a few moments. On a gray April morning, as a chilling wind blew, a thousand dark promises were about to come true. As Satan stood trembling, knowing that. The Lamb took His first step on the way to the cross. This must be the Lamb, the fulfillment of all God has spoken. This must be the Lamb, not a single. Sheep to the slaughter 
You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now return to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and and welcome back to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism. We've been speaking with a uh, revert to the Catholic Church, Maria. And uh, just before the break, I was soliciting calls, and I think uh, we have one now. So are you there, Jerry? Yes, sir, I'm here. Sorry to, you to make doing? you wait. Um, what was your question or comment? Well, okay, uh, you know, I might be naive. I've, through the years, I've, I've you know listened to the talk on the on the shroud and uh, and all the testing that have been done. You know, with the patchwork and and and, and uh, the DNA testing on parts of the blood where they uh, commented they had the DNA of a, of a man. You know who can you match it to? So I, I, I thought throughout the last few years, I said, well, they have Eucharistic miracles, you know, here and there around around the world, where the host, you know, bleeds and they have it have it kind of enshrined. And why why haven't they thought about uh, testing the blood off the Eucharistic miracles? We know the Eucharist is Jesus, so it would probably be His true DNA. I would think. You understand what I'm getting at? I do. It's not a naive question at all. It's a, I mean, it's an excellent point. And um, I know that they have uh, tested the DNA off of, um, I think it's the miracle at Lanciano, which is one of the Eucharistic miracles where oh, they have. blood was produced. And uh, I know that they've tested, I don't know that they've tested the DNA from the shroud, uh, the blood on the shroud. And I don't know, I, they're very protective of the shroud. I don't know how much of the shroud would have to be destroyed to do that uh, obviously some of the shroud would have to be destroyed you know to get the the, the blood right, sample right. and i don't yeah, know perhaps, I thought, perhaps that's why they I haven't do. done it i'm just i don't know for a fact okay. but i do know that the blood type um on the of the blood on the shroud and on all of the eucharistic miracles is the same blood type which is a relatively rare blood type it's about five percent i think of uh, the population. A-B, yeah, it's A-B. And, um, okay. and so it's, it's the same blood type on all of them, which is confirmation. It's not absolute confirmation, but it's certainly a very uh, beautiful pointing in the direction that, of course, the Eucharistic miracles are the true flesh and blood of, of, um, of, of Jesus. And I don't know if you listened to the show, I think it was about three weeks ago, which I did on Eucharistic miracles, but the scientific evidence is just absolutely overwhelming of the veracity. Of I wish the I would Eucharist- heard that show. I don't get to listen all the time. Well, do you have access to the Internet? They're, they're, they're on podcasts. They're available on okay. uh, the Radio Maria website. And it'll say, you know, the show on Eucharistic miracles. It was about three weeks ago, but the... Um, uh, including some very recent ones, including one I think was 2006 and one in 1999. So, you know, even if you don't want to believe anything that happened 300 years ago, this is these are things that took place under the eyes of modern science and are totally inexplicable other than as being entirely miraculous. Uh, I had personally... Yeah, I just, I just wondered if they had connected the two, because, you know, I heard they had some kind of test done on this route. 
and that all I heard was determination that it was male, but with nothing compared to this was some time ago. But anyway, I appreciate the update on that. Uh, and that, that's about all I have. I won't take up your time anymore. God, God bless you guys. And, uh, and we'll see you down the road. Uh, thank you very much. And do look up that uh, show from three or four weeks right. ago. I'm sure you'll find it very interesting. Roger that. Yes, sir. Like my brother always told me, if I don't see you in the future, I'll see you in the pasture. <laughs> That's right. I hope so. Pray for me so I see you <laughs> up there or send a care package if uh, I don't. Okay. You guys have a good one. Thanks. Good day. You too. There is a, a caller that I think is kind of, uh, you know, on the verge of calling or, or uh, has expressed an interest in calling. So go ahead if you're hearing, if you're listening. And, um, Meanwhile, I guess we should uh, we'll just continue with with uh, with Maria. So, uh, boy, I don't know. Okay, we're we're coming into Lent, and um, uh, you said something very interesting when we were talking uh, to do the preparation for the show. That even when you had left the Catholic Church entirely, and even when you were, you know, very fully in Protestantism, somehow Lent still had a hold on you? Yes. As a matter of fact, thank you uh, for reminding me. The, um, I, I was just, I, I remember that um, as soon as each of my children were old enough, I taught them to give up something for the period of 40 days for Lent. And we did, we went to Ash Wednesdays. We went to, uh, you know, the, 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 we kissed the cross on Good Friday. I mean, I never let go of that. And I'm, I'm sure that was from my baptism. Uh, you know, because, you know, baptism is where the seeds are planted and, you know, we're, we're given the, the Holy Spirit. And Lent was always so important to me, and I couldn't understand experiencing Easter without that, that process. You know, um, it's interesting that he should call in about the Shroud. I always recommend to people to read a book by Mark Antonacci called The uh, Resurrection of the Shroud. That was his first book, and he just wrote another one called Prove the Shroud, and he collected all of the scientific findings and, and made lists of all of the different disciplines of science that have examined this, including physicists, and that book is fascinating. I, I kind of got, they, he kind of lost me with explaining carbon dating because that was very complicated, but it's it's palatable to a non-scientific person to just get an idea of how baffling that that piece of cloth is the shroud is an amazing amazing thing to look into and there's so many books on it now but the first one i ever wrote, uh, read was mark Antonacci by mark Antonacci. it's called the resurrection of the shroud <clears throat> in fact yeah, absolutely it's such a myth yeah. it's, it's so infuriating actually that um the kind of you know new york times headline type view of the world is that the shroud's been disproven I mean, it's, oh, it is, it is so far from the truth. It uh, is. It's, it's infuriating. I don't think anyone could contest the following statement, which is of all, all of the science and technology that's available today in 2016 could not counterfeit the shroud. Exactly. exactly. Much less in, in the 16th century, but there's no explanation for it. There's no ability to simulate it. I, I mean, it, it could just could not be done even today. And the fact that there's actually a, uh, is it Benedictine sisters that are in uh, Summit? They have a replica in their chapel, in their uh, adoration chapel, of the shroud because there was a noble woman who requested a replica. And they actually laid the replica on the true shroud. And there's a spot of blood 
the, the actual shroud actually bled onto this replica, and it's the AB blood type. It's the same blood wow. type as the shroud, and they have it in a frame in the, in the, in the opening of their chapel in Summit, New Jersey. It's a very special atmosphere in that chapel. Well, that that I, amazed me. Yeah, I wish I had so known we, that when I was in New Jersey, but next, I, I won't let it pass by again. Yeah. I was uh, privileged to visit the shroud uh, twice when it was on ex- exhibit. Wow. And it was just spellbinding to sit there uh, actually for hours and and just and just uh, basically meditate on it. But I'm, I'm really I'm avoiding saying the truth, which is it produced an absolutely um, unique spiritual atmosphere. I mean, it just yes. it was just an overwhelming presence that you felt in the presence of the shroud. That's what I've heard. That's what I've heard. I haven't yet had that privilege. Uh, no, but we have a lot of uh, treats in in uh, in store for us. So, um, tell, talk now um, about. Uh, I apologize for phrasing it oh, that way. That's okay. But, but um, you again in our previous conversation, you talked about how you couldn't imagine, in some sense, you couldn't imagine facing life without the help of the Blessed Virgin Mary. I don't know how I got through my trials. I, I it, it, had I known what a friend she was. Had I been, you know, had I been given that as a child, because, again, when we left the faith, it was right after I received my first Holy Communion, and I, I was so young, and it was such a, such, somewhat of a tumultuous time, I wasn't given all of those, I, you know, like, I don't remember having my first rosary, I don't, you know, I, to think that I went through, like, my family broke, and I went through a divorce, and if I had had... You know, I wonder how things would have been different if I were praying my rosaries, and I know they would have been different. You know, and uh, I don't, I guess it happened when God meant for it to happen, that we, we would come in together as a family that was in God's time. But I I know that I've read many beautiful things about how the ma- the marriage between, like, what she told you, her favorite title, daughter of God, spouse of the Holy Spirit, and mother of Jesus, that her espousal to the Holy Spirit, wherever she is, the Holy Spirit's there. And it's it's this sense of an expansive peace when you meditate on her and and really when you're sitting quietly in church and contemplating her as a person, you know, a human being in the flesh. I mean, it's just the incarnation alone and the fact that, you know, he was raised by two, you know, two people and that he, he... took on human flesh it's like we talk about it all the time we know it happened but if you really stop and think and meditate on that it's 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 profound and the level of trust that was given to her and to saint joseph um let me i I hate to do this to you but let me interrupt because i i see that we have another caller and i want to make room for the call uh since we're heading towards the tail end of the show so are you there joshua uh, <clears throat> yes, thank you. Thank you for the privilege of being on the program. Very nice to meet you in person. Uh, great. Did you have a question or comment? or? Uh, my only question for you, um, uh, to be brief and, and to the point, um, you're, I haven't had the privilege of reading your book yet, um, but we we have a number of, of connections and, and familiar grounds, I, I 
on in front of the website. You're uh, being interviewed in front of a movie poster for Integrate Silence. I wanted to know if you had ever thought of uh, recording, that is, either your own books for an audio version or maybe scripture, editions of scripture, or there's quite a few. Uh, I accept the authenticity of the Shroud anyway, uh, especially based on Barry Schwartz's um, uh, his, his testimony. Um, but I didn't know if you had... Uh, for, have, for, what's, for what's made available in writing, when it comes to these subjects, uh, having audio versions, uh, it's always a great uh, aid. And I didn't know if you ever, ever yourself thought of or considered recording uh, 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 books as well as radio. You have a very good voice. I didn't know if anyone's ever asked you that before. Well, actually, I did do an audio book recording of Salvation is from the Jews. Um, very good. Just basically reading know. the text, but it is me doing it. Um mm-hmm. And uh, it's available from Ignatius Press, who's the publisher of the book. Um, I'd, I'd give it away for free, but I don't actually have mm-hmm. the legal right to do that, uh, you know, because the copyright belongs to the publisher. That's the only one I, uh, that's the only book that I have on audio, but uh, mm-hmm. I rarely say anything without it being freely available in perpetuity over the internet. Uh, if one goes to my website, it sounds like you have salvation is from the Jews dot com. Mm-hmm. Virtually all of my talks and radio shows and conference talks and so forth are up there in either video or audio or both. Uh, and that's really the, the closest I, I come to doing that. But I certainly agree mm-hmm. with you that it's a tremendous, it's a tremendous boon and a lot of people you know, spend more time, you know, either watching something or listening to something than they have the luxury of sitting down with a book and reading. So I do mm-hmm. try to do that. And I have a YouTube channel also, uh, Very which, uh, you, I mean, if you just Google my name, if you spell it right on YouTube, uh, and I have a lot of, tell the truth, I have some conference talks on there that I would love someday to turn into books. But mm-hmm. they're already there in the, you know, kind of hour and a half summary form. And it's a lot easier to prepare and give a talk than it is to write a book and, and bring it to publication. So maybe I'm being a little bit lazy, but I have a lot of really good ideas up on up on my YouTube talks, I guess is what I really mean to say. Excellent, excellent. The only other question I have for you specifically, this is a suggestion and a question. Um, as you know, um, just for preserving artistic license and trying to uh, protect the, um, the um, reputation of, of friends, uh, preserving you know artistic license that's relevant uh, to what you're about. Um, you are in a place to um, perhaps, and I'm not defending the certain statements that were made by by Mr. Gibson post post the filming of The Passion of the Christ, but you have the position of being able to say maybe he went on a theological tirade and not a racial one, because as we as you know very well, as we both don't know, the Jesus the original, the Virgin Mary the original, they were both Jews, and you really can't be branded an anti Semite in, in technicality, but it, it's still true. Um, I, I hope that he's encouraged to go on using his artistic license 
to to film uh, uh, sacred sacred editions of, of sacred material. Like he had plans to do the Maccabees, and um, and uh, uh, again, I'm not defending it, like explosions that he might have stated. There's also attacks of, of the enemy, um, but but it would be a shame. Someone in your position could say, well, it's, it wasn't. You know, there was nothing racist really. It, it was more. Uh, uh, probably theological frustration, or it might have been tensions. It might have been. It probably was a spiritual attack. But um, to, I, I'm just someone who wants to see more um, uh, visuals. Uh, the visuals, whether it's film or paintings, they have an extraordinary influence over um, people uh, in through conversion. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with, just for example. Uh, Peter Hitchens, uh, the author of The Rage Against God, he's certainly not an anti-Catholic. He's very close to being one. Um, he wrote a book, uh, I'm sorry, he wrote a book called The Rage Against God. I just said that, but he was converted from atheistic socialism through just staring at a altarpiece, um, the, not the Eisenheim altarpiece, different altarpiece, uh, the Roger van der Weyden's The Last Judgment. And I just see Mel Gibson as someone with the talent to kind of put on film sacred uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to um, yes. cut you off there because I have to close the show in about 60 seconds um, yes. so yes. first of all on, I'm thank sorry you. I, I hope that wasn't too wordy no but um, I I used to be actually I'm, I, I, <laughs> Mel Gibson has a very special place in my heart and I used to be very close to him and was actually a house guest oh. of his a couple of times and and uh, spent oh, a, nice. a week with him at uh, his house and office once and stuff. Uh, so I, I think the world of him as a person, I, I'm not prepared to defend his, um, uh, you know, drunken rant tirade as not being anti-Semitic, frankly, although I agree right. with you completely that, I mean, the spiritual warfare that one yeah. is subjected to when you do something like make a movie like The Passion of the Christ you know, would bring right. down better men than him. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's very hard to imagine what that kind of diabolical attack would be like. And in fact, I did right. hear some of that from him. So, so I, I don't hold it against him, but I, I'm not about to say it wasn't anti-Semitic. Um, but I think you're right. And I think that the, uh, he's got a tremendous amount to still contribute should he take that direction in, um, yeah. I mean, and bring basically, we were all in the same business, which is bringing hearts and minds and souls to God. And, um, I certainly hope and pray that he, he, uh, you know, takes up that, that task again. But anyway, we're at the end of our time. So I just have to, I thank you for calling. I want to thank Maria for coming on. And thank you for inviting thank you for, me. Thank you. And I uh, want to thank our listeners for having listened. And join us again next week on Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism. Bye for now.